0: This is James Coover with k Street Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Grab report. Sure, Scott's pines are pretty, and white pines are soft, and plastic pines are easy. But my favorite Christmas tree is our own red cedar. Practically free and literally everywhere, I looked at the pastures trying to find the perfectly shaped Christmas tree. It's not always easy to find one that isn't misshapen, but that is before being cut down, stood in the living room, and covered in shiny things. Unless you live near a Christmas tree farm, it is very likely that any evergreen out in the field is going to be an eastern red cedar, Latin name, Juniperus virginiana. The juniper's name is because eastern red cedars aren't actually cedars at all, but a juniper. However, a lot of junipers are confused for cedars, and vice versa. Most junipers are small, bushy shrubs, but our eastern red cedar juniper can grow up to 60 feet tall. That's nearly as tall as our big stately oaks and walnuts. The current state champion Red Cedar is 63 feet tall and stands just outside Neota Shea in Wilson County. Something rather cool about Eastern red cedars is that they are dioecious species, meaning individual trees can either be male or female. The male creates little brown pollen cones at the end of the needles, while females create little blue berries with little seeds inside. Younger trees might not have either yet, as it takes a few years before they start to attempt reproduction. There is a fair bit of genetic variation and shape in cedars as well. Cedars are very prolific, and can take over any pasture that isn't managed. They can grow in swampy wet areas, rocky hilltops, and thick understory, or completely unprotected. It is no wonder they have become a nuisance species where it's not commonly mowed or burned. If you see an evergreen that isn't in somebody's yard, there's a very good chance this it's eastern red cedar. They are the only native evergreen to Kansas, where they used to grow in the rocky bluffs so they could escape the burning of the prairies. Red cedars do provide food for birds from the female berries and thick shelters for different animals. A few red cedars can be good for wildlife, while too many end up being a rather poor habitat. For deer hunters, a few red cedars provide a certain amount of cover and brush that deer prefer but too many and it starts to go in the opposite direction, when deer avoid because they can't see far in the shrouding area. Also, red cedars grow thick and can limit the understory broadleaves that deers graze on. Quail will also occasionally use a red cedar as a headquarter, but too many and it won't be able to leave enough understory for quail to run through. If you have big red cedars that are too tall and high up for quail, they can be cut down and left laid over in a big pile. This can provide enough thick cover for quail for a few seasons. Besides use for wildlife, red cedars often can't be beat for windbreaks for houses and for cattle, as they don't require much maintenance, besides occasionally spraying for bagworms, and they grow fairly quickly. Controlling red cedars can be easy, unlike the majority of deciduous trees, if they are cut below the lowest growth point, so no stump treatment is needed. In native prairie, prescribed fire can control trees less than three feet tall. Crazon P.D., Surmount, and Tordon are the most effective herbicides on red cedars, but effectiveness decreases in tree size. If you are looking to cut one down for a Christmas tree, the best place to be will be in the middle of an unmanaged field, where there is no shading from other taller trees. Bring gloves though, because they are the pokiest of all the evergreens. Really, they actually make awful Christmas trees, but they are everywhere, and they are free, and honestly, they need at least some reason to be cut down. Merry Christmas. This has been James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Preparing for winter doesn't look the same for each species of livestock. Of course, in cold temperatures, energy needs increase across the board. Horses do quite well in the cold. A three-sided shelter will provide protection from the elements, and a clean place to lie down will help conserve body heat on a cold night. Ensuring proper diet, water intake, and exercise level will help your horse stay healthy all winter long. Just because energy needs are increased due to low temps, it's not enough to just dump more grain out. Hay is the best way to increase the amount of energy consumed. More heat is produced from the fermentation of fiber in the hind gut than from the digestion of grain concentrates in the small intestine. If forage quality is poor, a ration balancer can be used to provide balanced minerals and vitamins that may be missing from the forage. For horses that have difficulty maintaining weight on forage alone, higher calorie grain concentrates or fat supplements may be added to the diet. More forage consumed means more demand for water. The average adult horse needs about 10 gallons of water daily. Horses in heavy work and lactating mares need even more. Lack of water can inhibit all that fibrous material from moving properly through the digestive tract, increasing the risk for impaction colic. Horses are known to eat snow, but they don't usually eat enough to satisfy their water need. Provide free choice salt year-round. Other ways to increase water consumption include soaking grain, beet pulp, or hay cubes with warm water or adding flavor like peppermint oil. Electrolyte supplementation can also encourage drinking, but shouldn't be done every day. A working horse through the winter will likely sweat, calling for different care to prevent chills that could lead to hyperthermia. A fleece or wool cooler should be placed over the horse after exercise and left until the coat is dry. Blanketing over a sweaty, wet coat Can worsen a chill and increase risk for hyperthermia. If exercise remains a steady winter routine, clipping the horse's coat is one way to reduce excess sweating. Should your horse have a blanket? Imagine snow on his back. If the snow is just sitting there, no problem, but when it melts and your horse's coat gets wet, heat's lost. A fleece or wool cooler will allow the coat to dry without too much heat loss. Older horses and those that have trouble keeping weight on can benefit from the added warmth of a blanket. A well-fitted blanket will help conserve energy. Stabled horses will also appreciate a blanket when heading out into bitter winds. Once you start blanketing, you'll need to continue until the weather warms up. Blanketing can flatten the coat, reducing its insulating ability. Stalled and blanketed horses need vigilance. Remove the blanket every few days to check for sores and ensure that your horse isn't losing condition. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337.
0: Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's Davin Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent with her report.
2: This is David Strons, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Cottontail rabbits are one of the most commonly observed animals in urban and suburban areas, but they can be found throughout Kansas. Their light brown upper body contrasts with their white fur belly. Long ears and a stubby powder puff tail are their distinguishing characteristics. Adult cottontail rabbits are 15 to 19 inches long and weigh 2 to 4 pounds. Cottontailed rabbits produce three to four litters of young a year, beginning in late winter and continuing into early fall. Females build a nest approximately the size of a softball, line it with fur from their bellies, and nurse their young for two to three weeks before they leave the nest. Leash laws restricting movements of dogs and cats, and laws prohibiting the use of firearms, protect cottontail rabbits and contribute to their abundance in urban and suburban areas. Cottontails prefer brushy cover interspersed with open areas. Abundant growth during the spring and summer provides the rabbits with all the food and cover they need. In the winter when food is limited, rabbits eat twigs and gnaw the bark of woody plants. This is why young trees and seedlings need to be protected from rabbits during the winter months. Landscaped yards provide excellent rabbit habitats, accounting for the prevalence of cottontails in most suburban and urban areas. Cottontailed rabbits spend their lives in small areas of 10 acres or less. In good habitats where cottontail rabbits are firmly established, efforts to permanently reduce the rabbit population generally are not successful. Once a number of rabbits are removed, cottontails from adjacent areas move in. Gnawing marks and twigs cut at an angle, clippings on the nearby ground, and round pea-sized droppings are signs of cottontail rabbits. During snow cover, cottontail rabbits tracks are easily identified. Rabbit proof fences are a practical and inexpensive way to protect valuable plants. Rabbits can be excluded from small areas of vegetable and flower gardens, nurseries and ornamental plants by encircling these areas with 1 inch mesh galvanized wire 18 to 24 inches high. Permanent posts are not required. But the bottom edge of the wire must be staked to the ground or buried several inches deep to prevent rabbits from burrowing under the fence. These 18 to 24 inch high panels allow gardeners easy access yet exclude foraging rabbits. Small trees or seedlings can be protected with cylinder guards made from small mesh
3: hardware wire.
0: Thank you Adavin and now here is Jesse Gilmore with his report.
3: With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When snow falls and cities need to clear off streets and sidewalks, they turn to salts to de-ice. Salt is great for hard surfaces, but creates problems when introduced to soil and plants. Salt can impact plants in two different ways. By a physical contact with plants thanks to spray, or by salt particle runoff into the soil where plants are present. Spray will have very noticeable damage on the sections of the plants it physically touches. Often this will come in the form of burn patches because water is physically pulled out of the tissue by the salt particles. Salts applied to roads can travel up to 1,000 feet from the application site in the form of sprays. Usually this is due to high speed traffic hitting salted patches of road or highway. People who live next to well-traveled roads might want to consider plants more tolerant to salt spray like those on the east coast. Most plants that don't have active growth will only be slightly affected by salt spray, but evergreen plants can be affected at any time during the winter. Deciduous plants will be hit hardest after late snowfalls or ices when the plants are starting to bud or leaf out. Unfortunately, plants that have been hit by salt spray will find it very hard to recover scorched sections due to the dehydration that the spray causes. These sections will likely need to be pruned out at the first opportunity. Salt in the soil also causes problems for plants, but the problems span the entire plant and are much harder to diagnose at a glance. Salts like those used in most deicers occur naturally in the soil but start causing problems when the concentration of salt gets too high. With salt spray, the salt that lands on the plant tissue pulls the water out of it. Soil salt, on the other hand, influences the soil's osmotic potential. In biological systems, water always flows from an area of high water concentration to an area of low water concentration. When salt is introduced to one side of the equation, it lowers water's concentration because water makes up a smaller amount of the total molecules present. Roots can over Overcome A small imbalance in osmotic potential, but if salt builds up in excess, the water concentration in the soil becomes so low that water can get pulled out of the plant's roots and stems instead. This reverse water flow will almost always look like drought damage, even if you have been diligent in your watering. When we hear salt, most people think of sodium chloride, but chemically, salts are more than just sodium. In most cases, saline soils, soils with too many salts, can be remedied by heavy rainfall or watering, which carries the salt molecules deeper into the soil profile where they cannot affect most plant roots. Sodium buildup is harder to rectify, and if you are getting a de-icer at the store for this winter, you will want to choose a product that does not use a sodium salt as its active ingredient. If you are looking for salt-tolerant plants for your garden, here are a few to consider. For trees, serviceberry, buckeye, red and white oak, hackberry, arborvitae, crabapple, and pin oak. Maples, redbuds, and lindens are not tolerant to salt buildup. For shrubs, look for sumacs, lilacs, boxwoods, junipers, viburnums, and flowering quince, while steering clear from dogwoods. For information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu.
0: Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.